We're going to continue our study in John. Um, We are in the part of Jesus' trial before Pilate. In one way, this isn't directly a Father's Day message, but in another way, it really is, because I'm talking this morning about whether we line up with the world or with Christ, and that's very relevant to every father here in setting the example for our children. Uh, If you've missed the last couple weeks, I did one overview on this entire trial before Pilate section. Then I went back last week and looked at uh, Jesus' uh, testimony to Pilate, where he said, I've come to testify to the truth. Um, and, and then this week, I just want to focus on this part where um, Pilate has to decide, is he a friend of Caesar or is he a friend of Christ? So we're starting in verse 12 of chapter 19. There are printed messages available at both exits. You can grab one of those now or later. Um, I'll point out right now there's a major typo on point five in the printed messages. I read those over about a half a dozen times before I print them, and somehow I miss that one. It should read uh, Caesar in the first half of the point and then Christ. And uh, one of the people who gets the message online Uh, caught that and emailed me, but it had already been printed, so uh, my apologies. It is correct on the website now, so um, you can get one of those. There should be an outline in your uh, bulletin as well. I'm going to read John 19, starting at verse 12. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, Jesus, but the Jews cried out, saying, "'If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar.'" Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So then he handed him over to them to be crucified. There's a common saying that you can't choose your relatives, but you can choose your friends. Um... The friends you choose, of course, are going to affect the direction of your life. I told you before about a comment that Dr. Howard Hendricks made in our fourth year of seminary, and I've never forgotten it. He said to us one day, two things will determine where you're at 10 years from now out of seminary. Pause. The books you read and the friends you make. Another pause to let it sink in, and then he said, choose them both very carefully. Books and friends. And the best friend that anyone can have, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ, but as you know, to be his friend, you often have to stand against the world because the world opposes him. And in verse 12, of our text, Pilate had to make a choice between friends. The Jewish leaders 
who had brought Jesus to Pilate for judgment, said in John 19, 12, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king, they were accusing Jesus of that, opposes Caesar. Well, that cinched it for Pilate. He had a decision to make. He heard those words. He brought Jesus out. The other Gospels say he washed his hands of the case, but in effect, he gave Jesus over to be crucified. Pilate chose friendship with Caesar over and above friendship with Jesus Christ. And in going for that short-term gain, Pilate lost his eternal soul. And the lesson for us is that if you choose to be the friend of Christ, you'll lose your soul. I mean, of Caesar, you'll lose your soul. But if you choose Christ over Caesar, you'll gain your soul. Now, of course, when I'm talking about being the friend of Caesar, not many of us have the choice of being the friend of the president or some famous political figure. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about all that Caesar represents, the world, and all that it dangles before us to tempt us. First John chapter 2 and verses 15 to 17 warn us, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God, the text should read literally, abides forever. And that means abides in God's presence forever. James 4.4 is a little more blunt if you can be more blunt than John there. James says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, everyone who wishes to be the friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He draws that line. Or Jesus himself, as you know in Matthew, I mean Luke 16, 13, said, you cannot serve God and wealth or mammon. He didn't say you should not serve them both. He said it's impossible. You have to take your pick, one or the other. And so you have to make a choice, Caesar or Christ. And Pilate's tragic story brings out five contrasts that separate those two choices. The first one is that friendship with Caesar results in compromising your integrity and having a guilty conscience. Friendship with Christ results in integrity and forgiveness of all your sins. As I've explained in one of the earlier messages on this text, Pilate's glaring flaw was that he compromised his integrity in a futile attempt to try to keep both Caesar and the Jews as his friends and he ends up by, of course, uh, delivering Jesus over to be crucified. I mentioned in a message a couple of weeks ago that early on in his governorship, Pilate made a couple of stupid mistakes that compromised his leadership and his authority. The first one was, in a show of power, he armed the, his soldiers with shields that 
had a, an image of Caesar on them. And they came into the temple precincts. The Jews rioted because that was sacrilege. That was desecration, uh, bringing idol into the temple. And they staged a kind of sit-down or lay-down protest in front of Caesar's residence. He threatened to kill them, and they basically bared their necks and said, go for it, and stood up to him. It was a stupid thing to do, and uh, as I pointed out, just as an aside, parents, never threaten punishment on your kids you can't follow through on, because in that case, he couldn't follow through politically, and they knew it, and so he lost credibility. He lost his authority. Jews score one, Pilate zero. His next mistake was he built an aqueduct bringing water into Jerusalem, which was good. His mistake was he used temple money to pay for it. This time the Jews rioted and Pilate did slaughter a number of them. Uh, They protested to Rome. Caesar sent back a scathing rebuke of his leadership. Score, Jews two, Pilate zero at this point. Well, when they bring Jesus to Pilate for judgment, uh, he's down. He he's, doesn't hold the advantage. And so he asks them in verse 29 of chapter 18, what accusation do you bring against this man? Note their reply in John 18:30. If this man were not an evildoer, we wouldn't have brought him to you. In other words, what they're saying is, Pilate, you're not the judge here. We're the judge. You don't have any authority. We hold the authority. Now, please do what we're asking you to do and shut up and get, over, get it over with. They just wanted Pilate to rubber stamp their condemnation of Jesus. And he really doesn't have much power. They joust back and forth for a little bit. Jesus um, and Pilate have an exchange that I talked about last week where Jesus explains, my kingdom is not of this world Pilate concludes in verse 38 at the end of chapter 18, I find no guilt in him. Okay, if you find no guilt in him, case should be closed. He should allow Jesus to go free, tell the Jews, sorry, you lost your case, and uh, an innocent citizen should be released. But Pilate begins to compromise. He realizes he's on political thin ice, And so he uh, is afraid, if the Jews complain one more time to Caesar, I could lose my governorship and I could lose my neck. I mean, he could be executed. And so to save his career and his neck, he compromises his integrity. Rather than releasing Jesus, as he should have done, he offers the Jews a choice. He He capitalizes on, every year at the Passover, I release a prisoner. I know what I'll do. I'll pick the worst of the worst. This guy, Barabbas, is a terrorist. He's a murderer. And I'll give him a choice. Jesus or Barabbas, they'll pick Jesus and everything will be fine. And we'll be through this uh, tricky situation. He miscalculated. They picked Barabbas over Jesus. His next move was, well... I know, I'll scourge Jesus. Even though he's innocent, they'll see this poor man suffer, and they'll say, that's enough. That's, he's suffered enough, let's let him go. So he has Jesus scourged. But that just 
eggs them on. It's like a shark when he smells blood. They pounce on it and call for Jesus to be crucified. Two times again, verse 4 and verse 6 of chapter 19, Pilate tells the Jews he's innocent. He hasn't done anything wrong. I find no guilt in him. Uh, But they're out for blood. And so then their next ploy is they say, well, Jesus made himself out to be the son of God. As I mentioned last time, that spooked Pilate. He's now afraid because in Roman mythology, sometimes the gods came down and lived, or at least temporarily stayed among men. And uh, if you treated them well, when they got back to wherever they lived, they would treat you well and vice versa. And he's thinking, oh my, I've scourged a god. In the middle of all of that, adding to his anxiety, his wife sends him a message and says, I had a bad dream about that righteous man. Don't do anything against him. And Pilate is really spooked. Uh, He talks to Jesus one more time, is convinced he's still innocent, tries to release him. And then the Jews pull their trump card in verse 12 of chapter 19. If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Uh, Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Well, now Pilate's feeling trapped, and uh, he suppresses his conscience, and at this point, he condemns a man that he knows to be innocent. You know, the conscience is not so easily quenched, is it? You know, when you've done something wrong, and your conscience kind of nags you, and you kind of suppress it, Uh, it doesn't go down quite so easily. And Pilate, even though he was a ruthless, self-seeking military man who had executed, I'm sure, a lot of his rivals, he knew something's different about this prisoner. This isn't your average run-of-the-mill prisoner. Uh, This man speaks about the truth. Uh, This man just has a difference about him. Remember when the Jewish leaders sent the temple police to arrest Jesus back in John 7. And they came back empty-handed. And the leader said, where is he? Why didn't you bring him? And they said, never has anyone spoken like this man. They were awed at his speech. And I'm sure Pilate felt the same thing here. Jesus didn't talk like a man who's desperate to save his life. Um, He spoke with calm authority. He let Pilate know, you wouldn't have any authority to crucify me unless it was given to you from above. Uh, different man. And so this wasn't really Jesus's condemnation. It was Pilate's condemnation because in choosing Caesar over Christ, he's turning away from the light that he has and Pilate's conscience must have nagged him. When your conscience blinks, it's kind of like the light on the dashboard. You ever, most of us have a car, I do, that When I get low on fuel, it starts blinking. It's annoying. You know, you look down there. I know, I know. I'm getting low on gas. And you keep driving. You know? Now, what if you put a piece of tape over that thing? Well, pretty soon your car is going to sputter to the side of the road, be out of gas. Because it's blinking for a reason, saying you got a problem and you need to do something about that problem to fix it. And The conscience is that way. It it tells you, you shouldn't be doing this. You really shouldn't be doing this. And if you suppress it, you're not dealing with the underlying problem. And uh, pretty soon, unfortunately, your conscience 
is what the Bible calls seared. It becomes insensitive to wrongdoing. Now, if Pilate had responded back in chapter 18 when Jesus in verse 37 said, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice, he would have experienced forgiveness of sins. He would have experienced a clean conscience. He would have had the strength to act with integrity because he would have known I am now right with God through Jesus and I am Jesus' friend, not the friend of these people who are opposed to God. But he didn't do that. Now, before I leave this first point, let me just point out an aside. Um, In Acts chapter 4, as most of you know, the apostles and the early church pray there, and they say in that prayer that Pilate and Herod And the Gentiles and the rulers of the Jews did what God's hand predestined to occur when they crucified Jesus. And that's half of the truth. I mean, it's the full truth, but it's not all the truth. And if you conclude from that, that those men were a bunch of pre-programmed robots who had no choice in the matter, you would be in error. The Bible is very clear on the one hand, God is sovereign even over horrible events like the crucifixion of Jesus, and that gives us comfort that the world is not running out of control. God is in control. At the same time that he is sovereign, people are responsible for their sins. They are slaves to sin, but they are responsible for doing it. And you have to hold those both in tension. And if you get out of balance either way or the other, you're out of theological balance with the Bible. God is sovereign, people are responsible, and both are true at the same time. And if you want more explanation, I can't give it. (laughs) The Bible puts them both side by side many times. Uh, The second contrast here is friendship with Caesar goes along with contempt for people who thwart your agenda, whereas friendship with Christ results in compassion for all people. Pilate viewed the Jews as thwarting his career. They've already reported him a couple of times to um, Caesar because of their religious thing, which he didn't understand and had no patience for. And now because of their religious self-righteousness, John reports in in verse 28 of chapter 18, they would not even walk on the pavement where Pilate was living because they didn't want to defile themselves before their Passover. Have you ever been around somebody who's holier than thou? You know, they come across as really sanctimonious and they make you feel about this small. It doesn't exactly make you want to warm up to them, does it? You just want to back off and go, oh, man, I don't want anything to do with these people. And that's where Pilate was at. The Jews were so self-righteous. Oh, we don't want to defile ourselves. But, you know, at the same time, uh, they're killing an innocent man. Now, the tragedy is God intended for the Jews to be a light to the nations. They should have been a witness to Pilate. And when he said, behold your king, and pointed at Jesus, they should have said, he is our king, and bowed before him. But they didn't. 
So part of Pilate's contempt for the Jews was because of their self-righteous attitude toward him. But part of his contempt was they thwarted his career goals. He wanted to move up the political ladder and they were knocking him down by complaining to Caesar. And those who are friends with Caesar invariably have the mindset of using people for their further ends rather than loving people in spite of whatever uh, political advantage they might gain. Friends of Christ, on the other hand, feel compassion for people because Jesus always did. Remember how he lifted up his eyes and looked on the hurting people in Israel. It says he felt compassion for them. They were like sheep without a shepherd. He even, I think, extended an offer to Judas in the upper room by giving him the sop to say, Judas, will you respond? Uh, He, right when he should have been thinking about himself, he's thinking about the twelve in the upper room as he washes their feet and then gives them this wonderful upper room discourse and then that prayer that we have in chapter 17 that we spent some time on. Um, He offers Pilate to repent when he says to him that if you're of the truth, you'll hear my voice. Um, He hangs on the cross and instead again of thinking of his horrible agony, he offers mercy to the repentant thief on the cross. And he prays for forgiveness for his persecutors. Um, He, as we'll see next time, thinks of his mother on the cross and entrusts her to the Apostle John for her uh, care. Uh, All the way through his life, right up to his final breath, our Lord was thinking of others and showing compassion to them. And if we are growing to be like him, we will feel compassion for the needs of others. The third contrast is that friendship with Caesar puts you in bondage to fear and anxiety, whereas friendship with Jesus Christ frees you from fear and gives you peace with God. Pilate was living in fear of what will the Jews do. If they report him, his career is over. So he has to be careful not to offend them. And uh, he despises them, but... He knows, I can't just release Jesus because they've, they've got it on me. So he's in this political match with them, and he's afraid of what they might do. And he doesn't do the right thing to release an innocent man because he's afraid of the Jews. Uh, when the, the Jews tell Pilate that Jesus should die because he made himself out to be the Son of God, that spooks him even further because now it's not just, I'm afraid of the Jews, but what about this man? Maybe he's a god, and maybe I've offended the gods. And then his wife sends word, and that compounds his fear. And people who don't know the living and true God fear God, but not in the right way. They don't know God. We should have a proper fear of God. But they have a guilty conscience, as Pilate did. And guilty consciences always lead to fear. What if people find out what I did? What if there is a God, and he knows what I did? And people with a guilty conscience are always running, always afraid. And they're always trying to please people. And they're doing it just so they can get ahead, but it's, it's a life of fear and anxiety, you know. What if I offended him? Ooh, what do they think? The best thing is fear God, and then you don't care what people think. 
You know, you're, you're trying to please the Lord, not please people. And then there's, of course, the fear of God and judgment. You know, you go out on the streets and you ask the average American, do you think you're going to heaven when you die? And most Americans will say, yeah, I hope so. See, they don't know so. They hope so. And if you pin them down, well, I'm a good person. You know, they're hoping their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds. And somehow they're going to get in, you know. And they think, well, I'm not a murderer. And I'm not a child molester. And I'm not a terrorist, you know. So I'm a good person. I read about a guy who said, my greatest fear is that I'll be standing behind Mother Teresa in the final judgment line. And I'll hear God tell her, you know, you should have done more. And if you're working for salvation, that's the deal. I mean, maybe you're B plus, but God grades A. You got to have straight A's. So the works approach is always going to produce a fear of God and a fear of judgment. Friends of Christ have put their trust in his shed blood, and they know that it covers all their sin. That's the good news of the gospel, that there is uh, forgiveness in Christ. And we don't need to fear people, and we don't need to fear God's judgment. King David had many people seeking his life, many enemies, and he sang this in Psalm fifty-six, eleven: In God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Or Psalm 118, verse 6 echoes it. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do for me? And so as friends of Christ, our concern is, I want to please him out of love because he loved me and gave himself for me. But I don't need to fear judgment. In fact, death will usher me into his presence where I will be welcomed as his child because of Christ. Friends of Christ also know that all our sins are forgiven. Paul in Romans 5.1, wonderful verse, says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we don't need to fear death. We will be with the Lord forever. We don't need to fear people. Am I pleasing him or her? And what do they think about me and all of that? So let me review real quickly. The first thing, first contrast, friendship with Caesar or the world results in compromising your integrity and a guilty conscience. Friendship with Christ results in forgiveness and integrity. Second, friendship with Caesar um, goes along with contempt for people who thwart your agenda Friendship with Christ results in compassion for people. Third, friendship with Caesar puts you in bondage to fear and anxiety. Friendship with Jesus Christ frees you from that fear and gives you peace with God. The fourth contrast is friendship with Caesar always results in moral relativity and cynicism toward truth, whereas friendship with Christ gives absolute moral standards and knowledge of the truth. I think for Pilate, whatever was right was whatever advanced his career and also got the Jews off his back. I'm sure he felt bad about condemning an innocent man and seeing him flogged and and then crucified, but in Pilate's mind, 
you got to do what you got to do sometimes, you know, to get ahead. And uh, if it's my neck or his, I'm sorry, he goes. And so that was Pilate's mode of operation. And besides, he might have thought, well, that many Jews can't be wrong. I mean, if they're against him, there must be some basis for their charge. And so he salved his conscience with relative moral standards. Also, as we saw last time, he was cynical about the truth, especially in spiritual matters, if even there is such a thing as truth. Pilate probably was of the mindset, well, there's a lot of spiritual answers out there, you know. Some worship this Roman God, and it works for them. And some worship that Roman God, and it works for them. And then there are the Stoics, and there are the Epicureans, and they seem to be relatively happy people. So who's to say that there is this one standard of truth that this man, Jesus, is proclaiming? And so when Jesus says in verse 37 to Pilate, For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. And then he adds, Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate's response is to scoff, what is truth? And he turns and walks away. We live in a day of relative morality. Uh, That's not news, but about uh, 12 years ago, back in 2003, a Barna research group did a survey, and they discovered that only 15% of people who did not make a claim of being born again, believe in absolute moral standards. So that means 85% of the non-Christian population in America says, no, I don't believe in absolute morality. Here's the shocker. Among people that said they were born again, only 32%, it's about one-third of those saying, I'm born again, believe in absolute moral standards. I hope that's not true here, but that was the result of their survey. The article reporting that said that in a public forum, Barna noted that substantial numbers of Christians believe that activities such as abortion, gay sex, sexual fantasies, cohabitation, drunkenness, and viewing pornography are morally acceptable. And Barna said, without some firm and compelling basis for suggesting that such acts are inappropriate, people are left with philosophies such as, if it feels good, do it, or everybody else is doing it, or as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, it's permissible. In fact, Barna said, the alarmingly fast decline of moral foundations among our young people has culminated in a one-word world view. Whatever. That's kind of the attitude of many young people. You know, Jesus didn't come to testify to whatever. He came to testify to truth. And God's moral truth is not based on how you feel. And God's moral truth is not based on what everyone else is doing. And God's moral truth isn't based on, well, if it doesn't hurt anyone, it must be okay. God's moral truth is based on his word. And his word has told us what is right and wrong. And Jesus said, if you're my friends, you obey my commandments, not my suggestions. 
not what I kind of think maybe might be right, my commandments. And that's freeing to know God said this and it's true. And you don't have to debate it and you don't have to worry about it. You can live by it. And you know, God's truth is not subjective. And may I say, God's truth is not dependent on what nine unelected people in Washington decide this week about gay marriage. It's just not, that's not how we determine morality. They blew it 40 years ago when they said it's okay to kill babies in the womb. And they may well blow it this week. But uh, we know what God's truth is regarding morality. And so God's word is truth. We live by that, and it means we're going to be distinct from the world. But when you become a friend of Christ, you know the truth, and the truth doesn't just change with every wind of culture that blows through. The final contrast, and please correct the typo on your copy here, but friendship with Caesar, should read, gains a fickle friend, that offers no hope for eternity. Friendship with Christ gains a faithful friend for time and eternity. Pilate made the fatal decision to go with friendship with Caesar. And you know where that led him? It gained him about three years. In AD 36, assuming the crucifixion was about AD 33, three years later, a Samaritan guy rose up and gained a following by telling people that he knew where Moses had hid the golden objects from the tabernacle on Mount Gerizim. Now, anybody that knows history should have known, wait a minute, Moses never crossed the Jordan River into Canaan. He died on the other side. But, you know, quacks get followings. And so this guy gets this big following And he made the mistake of arming them so when they found all these golden treasures, they could protect them. Pilate interpreted it as an armed insurrection, sent in soldiers, and slaughtered off a bunch of the Samaritans. The surviving Samaritans complained to Pilate's superior, who uh, deposed Pilate and ordered him to show up in Rome for trial before Caesar. Fortunately for Pilate, Caesar died before Pilate got there, and the rest of the history is a little murky, but probably Pilate was banished to Gaul, which is today southern France, and uh, committed suicide there. His governorship was over. Uh, His life basically made the wrong choice. Now, You think about it, even if Pilate, by doing what he did, had gained the friendship of Caesar, and even if Pilate had run for Caesar, that's not the way it was done then, but say he had run for Caesar and got elected Caesar, it's still the wrong choice. Because as Jesus pointed out in Mark 8, 36, he said, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? forfeit his soul. On the other hand, if Pilate had chosen Jesus over Caesar, he would have gained a faithful friend, one who is with us wherever we are for time and for eternity. Now, let me clarify. Having Jesus as your friend does not guarantee you being insulated and protected from trials. Jesus promised that the uh, disciples in the upper room In this world, you'll have tribulation. 
He promised them they would be persecuted. And if you remember earlier in his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12, he said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets before you. I am not a prophet, but I have a hunch that those words will be very applicable to us in the years ahead here in America. Our brothers and sisters right now in the Middle East are living this. Many of them have lost their homes, they've lost family members, they've lost all their possessions, and they're living in some horrible refugee camp because of persecution. And if the Supreme Court rules in favor of gay marriage this week, we could lose your job for saying just honestly, I think that that is sin. Uh, You could, we might as a church lose our tax-exempt status. That's very predictable. They're going for us, and they're winning from a worldly standpoint. But they won't win in terms of eternity. And the promise is, even if you lose your life, you'll be welcomed into eternal joy and happiness with the Lord Jesus. Nothing could be better. So you got to make a decision. I read about a tough decision. There was a naval college, naval war college course known as Fundamentals of Command and Decision And the instructor was stressing the importance of making good decisions when you're under pressure. And uh, a visiting officer from a small foreign navy raised his hand. And he said, excuse me, he said, talk about uh, tough decisions. I was 700 miles out to sea in my destroyer and I got a, a dispatch that said, we've just had a revolution. Which side are you on? They didn't say which side won. They said, which side are you on? And he had to make a decision. Well, deciding to be the friend of Caesar or Christ isn't that kind of difficult decision because you know who's going to win. Christ has won, and he will win. And you can be a friend of the world, but you can't be a friend of the world and a friend of God's at the same time. Those are opposites. So you have to choose. And being a friend of Christ, you'll gain your soul. Being a friend of the world, you'll lose your soul. And that's the default mode, by the way, if you don't do anything. You have to choose to be on Christ's side. Let me pray for us. Dear Lord, we live in difficult times, but we know that our brothers and sisters in the Middle East are even in more trying situations. I pray you would give them strength to stand for you when under pressure. And I pray you'd give us strength to be gracious, to be kind, to be loving, and yet to be faithful and true to you. I pray, Lord, if any are here who have not made a decision to follow Christ fully, 
they would see the emptiness of following the world and they would commit themselves totally to the Lord Jesus. Help us to stand for you in the days ahead. In Jesus' name.